If you will, turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. In this gospel, we see the this introduction of the gloriousness of Jesus Christ in creation along with his Father, the purposes for what he came, but we also see the introduction of a person by the name of John the Baptist who was going to pronounce and be a messenger toward this coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll pick up in John chapter 1, verse 14. In the Word, and that Word, capital W, references right back up to the first verse, the Word, speaking of Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him, this is John the Baptist, and cried out, saying, This is he whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, yet he has explained him. And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent, the Jews from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I and has existed before me. And I did not recognize him myself, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness saying, I have beheld the spirit descending as a dove out of the heaven and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptized 
in the Holy Spirit. And I, John, have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That this is the Son of God. We see three composite things that occur here within this text. Many things, but three that we need to look at this morning from all the texts within Scripture that are available to us. John did not know, we do not know the Christ who takes away the sin, who is the Son of God. We do not know who takes away the sin, but the Son of God. And the sign and the seal of that was the dove descending upon Christ in that baptism. A more detailed reading of that you can find in Matthew chapter 3. But it is that portion of Scripture where the dove, which is a symbol of peace, which is a symbol of reconciliation, which is a symbol of when we know Christ and our sin is taken away, there is peace, reconciliation between man and God. We are reconciled to him and the wrath of God is sufficed in Jesus Christ. So there's the need to know and the need to know that he is the son of God and that it is he who takes away sin. So the first factor we have to look at is sin. It's one of the compound elements here. Paul wrote about sin in Romans 6. He said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of Jesus Christ is eternal life. I read a little blog the other day or something uh, on Facebook or where not, and it said, you know, if the wages of sin were paid immediately, there wouldn't be much sin, would there? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Why is that? Where did that come from? What happened? Why is this world and why is humanity in this state of existence in sin? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 so we can start understanding sin and who takes it away and start knowing and understanding the Son of God. I'm going to start in the basics, very basics in Genesis chapter 2. In chapter 3. Chapter 1 we'll take as accepted. God spoke and there was life and existence and being. He created something out of nothing and he governs and is sovereign over it. So that get us through chapter 1. Chapter 2 is somewhat a reiteration of the creation process. We'll start it in Verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all the hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which he had done in creation. And now we're going to get a relook with more specifics from verse 4 on. Into this wonderful and marvelous work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. That should answer your question as to the existence of life, period. That's the sentence you need. That's it. In the beginning, God created 
in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven and created time and space from eternity. Verse 5, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant on the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and he placed the man there whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Three trees representing to us the essence of God's creation. Food for sustenance, tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And verses 10 through 14 give you the great rivers that God created that flow, flow through that area. The water of life for animals and mankind and vegetation. And then in verse 15, God said, he took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it when everything was in place as God had so created. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to the cattle, to the birds, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then God took one of his ribs, closed up his side, and he fashioned into it a woman from the rib. For he had taken from the man and had brought it her to the man. In verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she has been taken out of man. And for this cause, this purpose, this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked. I forgot to finish that, didn't I? And they were not ashamed. Hold that. The man and his wife, which establishes for us the reality of the person, purpose, and intention of God in creation in regards to man and woman. Man's name at this point in the old 
language of that time is called Ish. The woman's name is Ishash. It will be later changed to give us a better definition and understanding, though Adam's will stay the same. So we see here some of the formidable things God has done. This is a covenant God has made with two created beings. It is a covenant of works. It is a conditional covenant. God in his supremacy has made it with these two beings that he has created. And it is predicated upon them functioning and working and doing certain things, clearly set forth for us in what we just read. Cultivate, grow, eat, partake, and then in these concluding verses, man and wife, the intention of procreation, multiply, enjoy. The other part of it was a command. One command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, surely you will die. So that in its sense is a pretty unique situation within scripture because the rest of scripture pretty much sets forth to us that all the covenants God made were covenants made by him on an unconditional basis. God said it, God does it, and mankind unconditionally responds to it. This one was conditional for them to do something or not to do something. To do something or not to do something. And as Adam and Eve are here in this position, remember this. They are created beings. We are referred to in scripture as created beings likewise, but not in the sense that Adam and Eve were. Though they are our first parents, Adam is called the mother, excuse me, Eve is called the mother of all living, and Adam is the husband and the father. And that will be subsequently we see in verses, or excuse me, chapter four onward. They were created. We are born from that creation. We are the progeny of those first two people. All of our DNA goes right back there. But the difference is, they had the capacity and the ability to sin or not to sin in the way God created them. And the test was, for their love of God and their fear of God, was one command. Enjoy everything else. Reap, work, cultivate, partake. Do not eat of the fruit for the knowledge of good and evil. So now we have Eden. We have garden. We have Adam. We have Eve. We have all the animals. We have the waters. We have the known earth at that point of time from northern Africa to the Great Rift Valley through Jerusalem on up to the Tigris-Euphrates River that are also mentioned right here in this chapter. We have man created by God 
Out of the dust of the earth we have the woman created out of man and formed out of him. And so we have serenity. We have paradise. We have bliss. We have sinlessness at this point. The last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife, that signifies marriage, that ordains marriage, that is the purpose and intent of God for one man and one woman to come together as stamped by the author of this book. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a little bit of a challenge when you read the text of Scripture in this sense. If they were not ashamed, does that give you the understanding that possibly they could be shamed? Because you cannot take one without the other. Someone is elected as president and someone is not elected as president. But at this point they were naked both man and wife and not ashamed scripture is telling us something it is giving us a look in a prelude into the marvelous wonder of god's word chapter three the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and he said to the woman, the serpent went to Eve. Has God really said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman corrected him and said, no, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you... Surely you will not die. Surely you will not die. Because God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, Eve, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, at this point, both are guilty. Of what? Violating the covenant God made with them with the one command and ordinance given to them. And once they ate, we're going to see what happens. But what I want you to grasp from this, and I want you to really partake from this, is not only what happened, but how rapidly it happened. And what is its outcome? So the serpent is a representation of evil. We know that there has been evil around. And the scriptures tell us, the scriptures tell us of a rebellion in heavens before creation. And it also tells us this, that if chapter 2, 1 and 2 occurred, 
by God's sovereign decree and intention, chapter 3 occurred also, and subsequently the rest of the book. God did not cause anybody to sin. God allowed for this to come in to their life to set forth to them to understand and comprehend the reverence and the fear of God and to test them. If you want to follow me, you don't have to, but I will read this rather quickly for you. In Exodus chapter 20, this is a very easy text to remember. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Those kind I can handle. It's right after the Lord God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And there was thunder and there was great noise and, and the rumbling of God in verse 18 of Exodus 20. And the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance out of great fear. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, Moses, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. God allows in his providence and the governance of all of his created realm for his purpose and for his being to bring glory to his name to use evil for good to bring glory to his name to bring people to fear him to bring suffering into our life to drive us to him to set forth in our hearts fear and reverence for him. As Newton wrote, it was his grace that taught me to fear and his grace that allayed my fears. So now we're at this point. They have both violated the God of all creation. They have shunned him. They have turned their back on him. They have acquiesced to the temptations of life. They knew the command, which was only one. And yet, they wanted to be like God. Self, as John Calvin wrote, is the greatest idolatrous tool there is on this earth. Verse 7. I want to go back to verse 5 right quick. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made them for loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? God knew where he was. God knows where you are. God knows where everything is at all times. This is a challenge to the man. Integrity and honesty and character of who he is now. The Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I went and I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me, she gave from, to me from the tree and I ate. amazing point of scripture here in this third chapter of Genesis with these two people before God the great word S-E-E found throughout the Old Testament is a word that most always in it not in all its entirety but most always is used to see means to know and to understand to comprehend and to learn from Satan said, oh, you'll be like God when your eyes are open, when you know this good and evil, when you eat of that. And when verse 7, when the eyes of both of them were open, they were not ashamed anymore. They were ashamed. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover their loins. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him where before they were in his presence on an ongoing basis. The Lord God called to the man said, where are you? The man said, I'm naked and I hid and I fear and I covered myself. The man said to God, this woman you gave me. This woman you gave me. Wasn't good enough, Lord. She caused me. She enticed me. She drew me away. And what did the woman say? Oh, this serpent, this serpent. Let me ask you this question. When their eyes were open, it means everything within them changed from that position of sinlessness to that condition of sin so rapidly so quickly she blamed the serpent and the man whom God had given such a wonderfully fashioned being to be his helper he shook his fist in the face of God and said, well, she's a flaw. You gave her to me. Can you give me something better? You see sin? Fear. Adam and Eve never hid from God before. Nakedness reveals guilt and shame. 
Now they're covering themselves. Verse 25, 2. They were not ashamed. This is the question I want you to ponder. Why did those two people not fall down prostrate before the God of all heaven and earth and say, forgive me, Lord? I have violated your command. Because sin entered. And when sin entered, there was no turning it back. The temptation of it even pollutes the mind, the heart, and the soul. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You ever played in the, the name game? The blame game? The non-accountability game? Sure we have. We all have. She, him, her, them. I didn't do it, you know. It's always someone else's fault, isn't it? Always someone else's fault. And their eyes were open. And they didn't become like God. They became full of sin. And if you want to see the outcome of the first part of it, in the marriage, in the relationship between husband and wife, just look at chapter 4. What happened to Cain and Abel? Their sin. I'm going to skip over here. To verse 20, chapter 3. The man called his wife's name Eve. From woman in Ishash to Eve, which now would be the Hebrew of Kavah, because she is the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothes them. Even in their act of horrid rebellion, arrogance, and disobedience to God. God in his benevolence for his creation and his love for what he has created clothed them. But, 22 through 24, puts the last nail in the coffin. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forevermore. You see that statement in your scripture stops. It's dangling. It means you can think all the way through this from what was previous said before. We could be left in a destitute state, those two people, dead in their trespass and sin, without hope. And the purpose of your life would be to be born and to die. That's it. Therefore the Lord God sent man out from the Garden of Eden to still cultivate the ground from which he was taken. 
Look at verse 24. I don't know how your text read, but mine says, God drove him out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard to the way of the tree of life. No more hope. The doors of Eden are closed with a big sign across them. No more entry into the relationship with the sovereign God of all creation. No more participation with him. No more works could ever appease him. Dead. You will surely die. They didn't die, did they? They were still alive. But they brought sin and death to themselves and to all their progeny. All you have to do is just read a few verses of the New Testament. And every one of us has tasted to some degree the reality of death, have we not? Sure we have. Sure we have. We died God made us in his image and likeness. We have a spirit. The animal kingdom does not. That's the difference in the way God made us. And when Adam and Eve had that soulful ability in that purity and innocence to relate with God, that is gone. But we do have the resonant aspect of the knowledge of good and evil, do we not? It's called morality. And we have a degree of morality because we were created by God and made in his image and likeness, even though that is corrupted and has fallen now and has consumed every creature born since then. You don't teach your kids to do evil, do you? I certainly don't teach my grandkids to do that. What do you teach them? To do good. Because we are naturally evil. It is there. It is easy. So when we look at this, we find that there's a need then for mankind because the garden is closed. The relationship with God is closed. Two points I want to make right here. One is a glorious part of this text that a lot of people miss. And it's not because they miss it intentionally. It maybe is because they're not taught it. It's Genesis 3, verse 15. The man's going to work, cultivate the soil, and it's going to battle against him all the days of his life. Why do you think Brazos Valley sells more herbicides than probably any other four counties in round? thorn and thistle. That's the battle that man has, the consummation of time in the battle against the ground. To the woman, he said, you are going to have great pain in childbirth, but mankind will be preserved through you. It's a promise that God said there's going to be generations, but not in the same position that Adam and Eve had. 
And I will preserve the woman through childbirth. For all you ladies that have had children or that are going to have children, you're going to have pain in childbirth. That's not a good thing, but it's like the rainbow. It's a promise of God that you are the bearers of life and that life will continue as he is setting forth to us here. And in that verse 15, there's the reality of the enmity, the battle that will continue to rage from the devil and Satan between the seed of the woman, all progeny. We all still fight that because we are naturally sinners and we sin because we are sinners. And the devil in our temptation, the devil and our flesh, and it continues. But then there's also another little part of that verse in that. It says, Christ will bruise Satan on the head. That's a death blow. Out of the woman, and out of the woman of Christ, Mary, will come a child. That child will be, as we read, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And through him, he will defeat the devil. It's what's known in theology as a proto-evangelism. It's the first reference without naming Christ, setting forth the understanding that mankind will be preserved through the woman in childbirth through marriage. And that seed will lead from Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, the doctrine of salvation, to Mary, the seed and the Holy Spirit in Mary giving birth to Jesus Christ in the flesh and his death on the cross and his resurrection to life everlasting. But for now, we don't know because we are in our sin. Quickly, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Genesis, we see the need. There's a great need for us. A great need for mankind. A great need to proclaim the gospel to mankind because only in the seed of Christ and through his progeny proclaiming the gospel and through the work of the of the incarnate Jesus Christ will mankind be saved. So there is a need, but there is no solution for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespassing sins. Now, that's where we are. Everyone that has come into the earth since that time dead. We know what trespass means. It's when you climb over the guy's fence that got the poster sign. You violated. Violated. An ordinance, but here you violated God's word and sins. When you were, verse 2, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this error, according to the prince of the power of the error, the spirit that is now working, in the sons of disobedience, that's a reference back to the serpent, Satan, and all the demonic hosts. Among them, we, we too, Paul including himself, 
formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through the gift of faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God and not as a result of works that anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Dead. In Christ Jesus, alive. We do not know him, but God, rich in mercy, calls us to know him and takes away our sin. And we live upon the words of the one that Hebrews said, chapter 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus Christ came to endure the cross and absorb the shame. Not ashamed, Adam and Eve. Shamed. Shamed. Christ endured the shame of the cross to clothe us in his righteousness. The same John wrote for us in John, 1 John 3, he said he came this is the purpose of Jesus Christ, one of the purposes, to draw, destroy the works of the devil of sin and death. We were saved in him and saved from the consequences of sin and death that entered back in the garden. We have a need and an inability to take care of that need. But God, rich in mercy in his son, Jesus Christ, fulfills that. For those that are called out of darkness into light, to live for his glory, they can look at these words and say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What a glorious thought. I'm going to conclude in Roman, excuse me, in Revelation 19. I'd like for you to turn there just briefly to these glorious words that would give us calls to praise in God and sing out hallelujah and amens and glory and all those great accolades upon it because we were without hope. And God brought his son into this world 
and his death, burial, and resurrection freed us to an eternal hope to live for his glory. And now that our eyes are open and that we can see, we see the wonderment of this in Jesus. Then we'll see the outcome of it here in Revelation 19, the first verse. After these things, John is writing about the previous things that he has talked about. As it were, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Pay attention to who he's speaking of here. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous, and he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And then a second time, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. That's an allusion to divine judgment against evil that it's consumed and burned. And the 24 elders in heaven and the four living creatures that John was seeing in this great vision fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you who bond servants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great, great multitude as the sound of a great waterfalls and the sound of great clasps of thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns of people returning with Jesus Christ, the saints, coming into the glory of his final return here on this earth. This is what John is seeing and hearing. And let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Husband, wife used throughout scripture to speak of the bride, the people of God that he has married himself to, to his death, burial, and resurrection. We partake of the Lord's Supper. But there's one great supper still to return. The marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ brings all his people together to present them at the banquet table before his Father who is in heaven. I, John, verse 10, fell at his feet to worship him to this angel. And the angel said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war against evil. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen and clean, in white linen and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he smote the nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads a winepress of the fierce wrath of the God Almighty, speaking, Jesus Christ coming to return to gather his people, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Word of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who we do not know, but in his grace and mercy now know, who takes away our sins, so we too can shout. Hallelujah. Paul told the Galatians best, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And then Paul said, only let your manner of life, let your manner of life, who you are and what you do, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for your grace and mercy in giving us Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, for the power of the Holy Spirit that works within, and for the hope, the glorious living hope, Father, to see him when he returns and to be with him forever and ever. Amen.